you know, if you're in an area where you're competing with homeowners who are trying to buy homes and there's, you know, undersupply and a lot of demand and housing, you know, is just going within days from when it's listed, typically your Airbnb investor is going after that same home that a homeowner would be. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. Ready to Scale is our new second season here where we focus on the business side of real estate, namely three key concepts that I like to call APS of real estate. So A stands for assets, P stands for process, and S stands for strategy. By listening in, you will learn valuable business principles to help your real estate business, whatever it might be, thrive and diversify. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. You can find all of our social media links and the show notes on my website, ellieperlman.com. Now, our guest today is my friend, Anna Kelly, also called REI Mom, as people know her. Anna founded Zaint Capital Group, which owns and manages a rental property portfolio valued at over $12.5 million. So Anna, besides running, you know, the company recently actually moved full-time to become a full-time investor and is no longer a W-2 employee. So she retired. We're going to talk to her about that as well. But a little bit more background on Anna. She is basically a top-ranked former financial relationship manager for a private bank in financial, in the financial sector for over 20 years. She's an Amazon number one best-selling author. She is a co-sponsor of a meetup group for women in real estate called REI Like a Girl. And she has purchased, renovated, and sold and rented millions of dollars in real estate across numerous asset classes while working full-time and raising four active children. And again, just this is something that just happened recently. She's no longer a W-2 employee. And so we would like to talk to, to Anna today about a topic that is very interesting. It's, very, it's, it's actually something that most of us heard about, but not a lot of us are actually doing. And this is Airbnb. So with that, I would like to welcome Anna to the show. Hey, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Ellie. Yeah, absolutely. And so recently, as I mentioned before, you actually retired. You're no longer an employee. How does it feel? It feels amazing. It feels really good. You know, I had a a five-year plan to replace my income with solid performing multifamily properties and get to a place where I could replace my income and have true financial freedom. And it took me right about five years, but I've just done it. 
And so it's very new. And I'm just kind of learning to balance that, you know, entrepreneur drive and working really late hours with taking lots of fun vacations and just enjoying the fruits of my labor. This is amazing. And I know that this is the dream of many people to retire from their job and to have full control of, you know, over their, their lives and become a full-time real estate investors, but it doesn't happen overnight, right? It takes time and effort to get there and a lot of planning as well. Yeah, it takes a lot of time, a lot of drive, a lot of planning, a lot of hard work. It's generally very active income until you get it to the place that it's passive, but it's well worth all the hard work to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's dive into the APS of real estate. And I would like to start talking about the asset class that that you like to invest in. So what is it exactly that you invest in? So Ellie, one of the things that you said that was key is diversification. So I think it's really important and probably a lot of it's because of my background as a private banker and, and looking at an entire portfolio and your different needs for wealth preservation, wealth appreciation or growth, and also income. And so residential real estate is really one of those things that hits all three buckets if you do it right. But within residential real estate, diversification is really important to me and something I've always thought of. So I invest in small single family houses in really nice neighborhoods that are more of a starter home type that can get really nice rents and where people are going to stay for a long time. They're going to preserve and they're going to grow and also bring in some cash flow, but they don't bring quite as much. And there's a lot that you would have to buy to really reach the point of financial freedom. And so I invest in small multi-unit properties for my own portfolio that have a lot more cash flow are also in nice neighborhoods, but maybe aren't going to go up you know, at quite as high as in value as the single family homes do. And then I've started to invest in vacation rentals. So I have a couple of high-end luxury vacation rentals at the beach, and I have a couple of Airbnb units that we have within one of my large multifamily complexes that we're starting to, you know, explore as an asset class as well. So those are the primary things that I invest in. I've got a, a couple commercial mixed use and self-storage assets as well. But residential housing and multifamily in particular is kind of my sweet spot. Interesting. I think what you just said was interesting because you're not focused only on one asset classes. You're very diversified across several asset classes. How do you feel confident enough that you have enough knowledge and information to actually purchase multiple asset classes? instead of just focusing on one and knowing it really well? I think primarily because what I invest in has commonality in that you're providing housing for people. So whether you're providing that housing for a week or a weekend or a year or much longer, and whether they are people that are more millennial rentals, renters or families that want more of a single family house, the, the concept and the business model is very much similar where, you know, self-storage is a little bit different, you know, the way they're valued is slightly different, but they all share the, the, the idea of you're purchasing an income stream. So for me, I don't look at myself as I am just a single family investor or just a multifamily investor. I view myself as an income stream investor. And so I want to buy assets that are going to provide me with a stable long-term income stream wherever I can find those assets and I can be confident that I'm going to be able to rely on that income stream for a very long time. So the general idea of investing in income producing properties where people are involved 
works across the gamut for multiple things. You know, I'm, I'm starting to look at a little bit of independent living and we have a building that we bought as an apartment, but we had a strategy of, you know, a plan B could be let's turn this into independent living and a plan C could be let's Airbnb it. So you kind of go where the demand is, but you're still essentially providing housing where people are going to sleep or where people are going to store stuff that's going to provide you income. And then it's just a matter of kind of tweaking your knowledge. Your big learning curve is done when you're when you're an expert in one of those assets classes. And then it's just a small incremental learning curve to add the next thing to your portfolio. Well, that's great. And so, and I want to go back and kind of focus on, you know, the asset itself. You mentioned that you're buying small multifamily properties. What is an average deal size for you? So Ellie, that is changing for me now. And I think with most investors, you kind of progress down a a path as to what you're going to buy. And I often say a lot of times people get involved in real estate and find their niche based on the amount of time they have available and the amount of money they have available. Well, for me, when I started out, I really didn't have any money available. And I, I didn't have a ton of time, but I knew I could make time to make money faster than I could make money to, to create time freedom. And so when I started out, I started investing in four unit apartment buildings primarily. So they're not commercial per se, and that they're not valued strictly on the income basis, like a five unit plus, but they were kind of a hybrid between the single family residential or duplexes and a five unit plus. And what I mean by that, Ellie, is that I could buy a building with four units and I knew that they would appraise both on an income basis and a comp basis. And in my area, they were almost all bought by investors and the appraisers kind of leaned more heavily to the income basis. So I knew I could buy a distressed asset, raise the values, force that appreciation like you would on a larger multifamily, but it's something I could afford to do slowly and just continue to take equity. So I'd refinance it once I had the values high and then take that and just keep repeating the process. So I started with many four unit apartment buildings. And then as I grew, I became pickier and wanted to buy bigger and bigger things for my own portfolio. So now the last purchase that I made at the end of May for my own portfolio was a 10 unit apartment building in my town in a really nice school district, really nice neighborhood. And then as I've retired, I've really shifted my focus toward buying larger multifamily buildings with partners where we have much less day-to-day sweat equity and labor involvement and self-managing. And instead, we're buying buildings large enough to be able to afford you know, full-time property management, full-time maintenance, and really focus more on strategy and, and acquisition and asset management instead of the day-to-day sweat work that's needed to self-manage small assets. And so I want to kind of shift the conversation to the process part. So when you're looking into a building and you want to purchase it for Airbnb, what is the process that you have in place right now that can help you go from finding the deal and sourcing the deal until you close it? Or if you want to focus on a certain aspect of the process and kind of you know, kind of open the door and to the behind the scene of what's happening with your company when you actually purchase a, you know, a a building that is suitable to be converted to an Airbnb, you know, apartment building. 
Sure. So Ellie, this is something that I've really just started doing and I'm really excited about. I've had a couple of short-term rentals at the beach that are very high-end, nice luxury beach houses for about two and a half years. And when I bought the first ones, really the key in the acquisition was to, like anything else, know your market. And you've got to really, really know that market well. Not only what can you buy the properties for, but what can you rent the properties for? Mm -hmm. And in an asset like the beach or with Airbnb, any, any place that you're gonna attract tourists or people that are coming to visit, those are gonna make the most ideal Airbnb properties because you know that you're gonna have a constant influx of people that wanna rent out a place for a few nights rather than just people that are you know, coming sporadically to, to visit family. So you want a location that is very highly visited and where you're gonna have a constant influx of, of visitors to come. And then you wanna make sure that you understand the competition of what other places are renting for. And your competition may be hotels or it may be Airbnb outfits that are out there that are actually starting out like a, a business model where they've got a whole bunch in the area that you can select from in one building. And then you've got your mom and pop individual investors that are offering housing. And so you really need to have a very good understanding of how many people are coming to that area. Are they really looking to rent a one bedroom place or are they families that want two bedrooms or two bedrooms in a den? How many demand pet friendly places? And how much rent can you demand for a one bedroom versus a two bedroom versus a pet friendly place? And so you've got to really know that market really well. And before I bought my first two Ellie, I met with a, a realtor who had a sales arm and also a strong vacation rental arm. And so I told him, you know, I'm an investor and I probably am gonna take some time before I pounce on something. But if you'll invest in me and teach me the market, I will be a repeat customer and I'll buy a bunch. And he spent three full days with me, taking me up and down Ocean City, Maryland, which is where I bought the first two, and showing me you know, the difference between a $100,000 view and a $200,000 view when you buy it, but that makes zero difference in how much you get for rental income. So I wanted to buy you know, the nicest, place in the nicest building, but with not quite the nicest view, but still nice and be able to make the biggest bang for my buck. So just that market research is the most critical piece of identifying an Airbnb property and making sure you're making a wise investment. And where do you get information besides, you know, obviously reaching out to a, a broker and having them toward the area and asking questions. But when someone is just looking out for, you know, to start to purchase an Airbnb investment property, where should they go? I mean, where, where do you go? What sources do you use so you can actually, you know, get this information? So I think it depends on how big you're looking to scale and how serious you are about making this an area that you're really going to commit to and grow. So if you're looking for your first one, and maybe it's a, a place that you like to vacation that you know you can use, you know, at a certain period when you're not renting it out, or maybe you want to do it in, a, in your own backyard because you're in a place that lots of visitors come. So I've got a few that are in Hershey, Pennsylvania that are within 15, 20 minutes of me that I won't use, but I know that market really, really well. So you've got to figure out a market that you're, you're willing to invest in and invest that research in and, and spend some time there. 
you can do it virtually, but there's nothing like putting your feet on the ground and really kind of understanding what that area is like and, and what's available. Aside from that, there is a report that's put out each year by rented.com. And there's some other similar reports. And what they do is they show you the most profitable places to own an Airbnb rental over the last calendar year. And so, for example, in 2017, I was looking to buy my first Airbnb. And I said, where is the most profitable place that I can start buying assets? And I had the one in Ocean City. I was thinking about buying another. And I was really surprised to find that Galveston, Texas was the number three most profitable place to own an Airbnb in the United States. And I grew up half an hour from Galveston, and most of my family are in Houston, Texas, and the surrounding cities. And I've always wanted to have a beach house there because I could come to the beach, visit my family, and go back to my beach house and not have to stay in hotels and bring my whole family of six with a bunch of, of family members. And even though I was really surprised, I never would have bought Airbnb there Airbnb there because I didn't think it'd be that profitable because I grew up there and didn't think there were that many tourists. And surprisingly, the rental season in Texas, because it's so warm, is really from May through October that you have almost completely full bookings at the beach because it's so warm and people can't continue to go, you know, to the eastern coast during spring break where the water's really cold or after about August. So that report is so critical because it tells you what's the price point that you can expect to get in at, whether a one or a two or a three bedroom is most profitable, about what to expect in the income and how long that rental season is. So it's, it's an absolutely critical report to look at as your first line evaluation of a market before you even decide to spend time on doing digging and further research. Got it. So basically, in terms of the process, you do market research, you nail down, you narrow kind of the markets that you want to be active in. And then can you just walk us through what are the different steps in the process until you actually purchase that property? So one of the things that I like to do, as, as I mentioned, is talk to a realtor who's an expert there. And there may not be that many realtors who are an expert on short-term rentals because it's still fairly new. And so most realtors, realtors are selling to people that want to come buy a second home or a single home. So they're willing to drop a lot of cash, but they're not really thinking as an investor who wants to rent it out, especially on your higher-end rentals. So I would call a realtor that has both a sales arm and a property management arm for vacation rentals. And so just, just Google and look up, you know, who's your top vacation rental companies in that town and at call and ask who their top, you know, producing agent is. And that should get you somebody to start talking to and ask them to meet with you and explain that you're an investor and start asking them all kinds of questions about, you know, rent to value um, how often foreclosures come on the market that you might be able to buy at a discount and fix up. You need to know how they need to be furnished. You know, what level of furnishings is it expected? What level of amenities or even things like toiletries and shampoos, you know, are they expected or are people going to bring their own? So meeting with a realtor is really important. And then the next thing that I would say is to do your own research. So one of the things I did, Ellie, with each of the, the Airbnb units that I bought is I created a massive spreadsheet, just kind of like you would when you're purchasing a multifamily or single families. And I wanted to identify competing hotels and competing Airbnb listings. 
So I went to HomeAway.com and VRBO.com and Airbnb.com. Those are like the top three places where people go to look for an Airbnb. And I typed in my city and, you know, two people. And then I do it for four people. And then I do it for six people. And I just look at how much are they charging for rent and how many nights are actually booked at that rent. So if I could see that everybody that's listing two bedroom Airbnbs for $150 a night are completely booked, I know that's probably about the price point where I'm going to be able to land. And I want to find something like that. If I go in and there's one bedrooms and they're only booked on the weekends and never during the week and never off season, I'm not going to want to buy a one bedroom Airbnb unit. So that helped me with the, just in, in putting the data into a spreadsheet, which you could hire a VA to do it. You could hire your teenager to do it. You know, put in that data and it takes time. But if you're really committed, just being able to see that data on a spreadsheet really will help you to get a, a pretty good idea of what type of Airbnbs are in demand and who's doing the best, how nicely they're furnished, you know, what amenities they offer. And so just start with that and you can get an unbelievable amount of knowledge to where you feel pretty good about what you can rent them for. And then it's just a matter of determining what purchase price you need to rent it for in order to be able to make the return that you want to make. It looks like you have a pretty detailed, you know, kind of process. So you know how you go from A to Z. Then once you allocated a good opportunity, a good deal, you're basically the next step in the process would be to start talking, engaging with the seller and the broker and submit an offer. Is that process very streamlined? Do you have a lot of competition there or it's not a very defined process? Because I can tell you from when, when we buy and you also a, a multifamily buyer, so you know that when you see a multifamily property that you like after you've done all the research and ran the numbers, there's a certain time period where you can, there's a deadline to submit offers. Then the the seller chooses a few buyers to move to the next level, which is called best and final. And then you're supposed to sharpen your pencils and see what you can do with the price. And then some of them are, some of, of us are being chosen to do a call with the seller. And then he decides who he wants to move forward with. So it's a very, very defined process. Is this the same also with vacation rentals, or it's basically once you see there's no deadlines and once you see a good property, you're just submitting an offer right away and trying to get the deal. Yeah, I think that this may be driven by location. You know, to be fair, I've only looked in a few key locations, but I think generally the competition is still less steep than it is in the multifamily where you're not having to get into a bidding war, you know, to get yeah. the highest and best offer. Now, you know, if you're in an area where you're competing with homeowners who are trying to buy homes and there's, you know, undersupply and a lot of demand and housing, you know, is just going within days from when it's listed, typically your Airbnb investor is going after that same home that a homeowner would be. So you might have more of just a general market where you're going to have to pay you know, the retail for a property and, and maybe not get as great of a deal up front. Or you're going to have to, just like if you were buying a rental property or you were going to wholesale or flip, you might have to target some off-market deals or do some, you know, target marketing to try to get a property that would be a good Airbnb rental. 
the other thing that before I even got, you know, go into the step of making offers is really important. And I, I see a lot of people not doing this and then getting stuck is that many municipalities are starting to get really nervous about people doing Airbnb if it's not in a town that is like known for that. So for example, Ocean City, Maryland, they're not going to stop people from renting out their beach houses because the tourist money that comes in is really what keeps that town doing well financially. They depend on that tourism. Now, Hershey PA, for example, you would think does the same thing, but they're not quite as dependent on that tourism. And a lot of single family homeowners have said, you know, we are higher end homes, wealthier, above average owners, and we don't want people that we don't know coming into our neighborhood, different people in and out all day next door. We don't know if there's drugs going on next door. We don't know if there's anything else, you know, unsavory going on. And they basically pushed back to these municipalities and said, we don't want that here. And these municipalities are struggling with, do we allow homeowners to use their homes however they deem fit? Or do we restrict their rights as homeowners and say, you cannot rent out your home on a short-term basis? And so that's a battle that's been going on in Hershey and in some other municipalities. And I'm hearing of it all over the country. Yeah. Like here in Santa Monica, I don't think it's even legal to do Airbnb because prices are so expensive and they're trying to control the prices. I also read something about a bed tax, which so you cannot rent if it's less than 30 days and above 30 days. If it's short terms, then you're paying a certain tax based on the beds that you're renting. It's crazy. It's just crazy. Yeah. It is. And so it's really important that before you decide to put an offer on Mm -hmm. a house, you check with the local municipalities, whether it be your, you know, in in the Northeast, it's kind of strange. We have a borough and then we have a township and then we have a county. So you may have three municipalities that could have some types of rules and regulations on your home and whether you can rent something out there. Then you've also got neighborhoods that have an HOA association and those neighborhood HOA associations may not allow an owner to rent short term even if you think that they can. So it's really important that before you even start making offers, you find out if this is a neighborhood I want to Airbnb in, check the HOA documents, check the municipalities. And I Google to see if there's any meeting minutes on short-term rentals, vacation rentals, Airbnb, you know, whatever kind of uh, keywords you can find for that county to see if you can find where they've been meeting about it and talking about it. So for Hershey, Pennsylvania, Ellie, they don't allow it in residential areas. And we have an apartment building that is in the same county. It's very strange, but our property line goes right right through the middle of our property. One is one side is one municipality and one side is the other. And in one side we can't do it, and in the other side we can. And so we're like, okay, let's pick the right unit on the right side. Yeah. Um, and because we're zoned commercial, we can get away with it where the zoned residential can't. So one of the things that's important, not only to know what the rules are, but know what changes might be coming. So Derry Township, Dauphin County, Hershey, Pennsylvania, for example, they are considering allowing it, but starting to put into to place some restrictions. So having to pay an annual fee and register as an Airbnb provider. And, you know, they, they think that that's a good way to have balance is to be controlled, allow it, but not get all of the, the town upset that you're doing it. So just be very aware of that. 
And the other thing is I really caution people, and at least for my for my own sense of peace of mind as a long-term rental, is you never want to assume that you're always going to be able to Airbnb the property, that you're always going to be able to make the money that you're making on an Airbnb today, because we don't know what is in the future five years from now, 10 years from now. Like right now, this is the industry disruptor, but there are big hotel chains now that understand this. And so they're competing by buying up a bunch of properties and kind of branding Airbnb units under their new Airbnb brand, instead of being like in a box for a hotel. So there's all kinds of things changing in the industry. And so if I'm going to buy a single family home or a condo or even an apartment building that I want to Airbnb a few units, I'm going to buy them based on the assumption that it's going to be a vanilla, plain, long-term rental situation. Like I'm going to have somebody that rents for me for a year. I'm going to make $900 a month on this house. And because I'm going to make $900 on the house, you know, the 1% rule I don't want to pay more than $90,000, for that house. Now, if I can Airbnb it and I can make $3,000 a month on that house, it's gravy and I'm going to do it. And that's going to be my plan, but I'm not going to overpay as if that is always going to be the case. I'm going to buy it just like a retail home that one day I might want to sell and I'm just going to be able to sell it for retail and I want to cash flow while I own it. And you actually just answered one of my last uh, questions regarding the strategy is why Airbnb and and not, you know, multifamily, just a, a very traditional apartment, you know, units that you can just rent and, and sign for 12 months. Because on, on the one hand, it's, I mean, I understand why that would be more attractive because you only need to deal with bringing tenants once a year instead of dealing with tenants that are coming and going because they're not really tenants, they're vacation, you know, it's the vacation rentals. So why do Airbnb and not just bring tenants? And I think I understand the the answer from what you just said. You, you basically can make a lot more money from short-term rentals for, for vacation purposes. Yes. Again, as long as you're in an area that can sustain it and that brings people in uh, for a long time. So for example, my units in Ocean City, Maryland, it's very difficult to get a good deal on a property. I bought one that was an auction, so I got a, a killing killer deal on it. And the other one was going into foreclosure. But even properties going into foreclosure in Ocean City are selling at like 90% of retail. So it's very difficult to get a really, really strong deal. And because it's in the Northeast and the beaches are cold, you really only have 12 weeks of rental income that you can bank on. And that's from the end of May to the end of August. And if you're in the right part of Ocean City, where you're near the convention center, where people can walk from their Airbnb to a convention year round, you'll do better because people, people are coming for different things, maybe two weekends a month all year long. But if you were to buy that and think that you're going to make that same summer rental income all year round, you're going to lose your shirt because it's very seasonal. And so certain locations are very seasonal and it makes sense to, you know, Airbnb only in the summer. So one of my rentals, I Airbnb'd in the summer and then I found a winter tenant that was a contractor to rent my house from August until the next April, the end of August till the next April. And so for those months, I just had a standard rent as I would with a normal apartment. Other locations like Hershey, we believe that we will have rental income consistently all year round on a weekend basis, even though it's not long term. 
but we've really, we're testing it, Ellie. So we did two units in my apartment complex that would have made 900 a month, and they're bringing in about 32 to 3,400 a month as an Airbnb. But we said before we just jump in and say, let's just make them all Airbnb. Let's go through the fall and the winter and the spring and see how much money they make and what is what is it kind of average out on an annualized basis. And then if you see that it's going to make you a lot more and be worth the headache and the extra work that it is to have a lot of tenants coming in and out, lots of cleaning people that you've got to be able to rely on and coordinate then you may open up a few more of those units to Airbnb. So it's just important to test it and to realize that while you can make a lot more money, it's not guaranteed to be year round and there's a lot more work for that money. All right. All right. Great. Well, that was, I I think, a great overview of vacation rentals. So, Anna, thank you so much for sharing that with me and my listeners. If investors or one of our listeners would like to reach out to you and contact you, how can they find you? So you can find me on Facebook at Anna, R-E-I Mom Kelly, or at my website, which is reimom.com. All right, perfect. Well, thank you again. And we're probably going to talk very soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Ellie, for having me. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.